Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Patients with cirrhosis and chronic liver dysfunction from portal hypertension can develop complications that require admission to the intensive care unit. This is a complex and very sick patient population with a high morbidity and mortality. In this episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss some of the most common complications in these patients and their management in the intensive care unit. Our guest is Dr. Ram Subramanian. Dr. Subramanian completed his undergrad education, medical education, and residency training at the University of Chicago. He completed a hepatology fellowship at the University of Nebraska before returning to the University of Chicago for postgraduate training leading in gastroenterology, pulmonology, and intensive care. From early in his career, he has been interested in all aspects of studying and treating multi-organ failure in the context of portal hypertension and liver failure. Ultimately, he decided to pursue a career that combined both. Dr. Subramanian is Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery and the Medical Director of Liver Transplantation at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. In his dual role as a transplant hepatologist and an intensivist, Dr. Subramanian is involved in the inpatient care of patients before and after liver transplantation. His clinical and research interests are focused on critical care issues related to hepatic failure and liver transplantation. He's a wonderful clinician, educator, and researcher, and I really can't think of a better person to discuss these topics with. Ram, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you. So I think Glad that, to be here. excellent. I think a good place to start would be maybe giving us an overview of why do patients with cirrhosis come to the ICU in general? So the patient with cirrhosis can be admitted to the ICU for both hepatic and extrahepatic organ dysfunction. So if you just run the list of all the potential complications going from head to toe, they can have um, admission for worsening hepatic encephalopathy, uh, worsening uh, shock from a cardiovascular standpoint, which is typically a distributed shock. They can have unique lung derangements, uh, such as uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome that can cause hypoxemia, uh, portopulmonary hypertension, that is a unique form of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And then they can have worsening in a hepatic hydrothorax. They can cause um, uh, issues in gas exchange. We go to, from the GI standpoint, they can have the very predictable catastrophic complication of massive variceal bleeding. They can lead in hemorrhagic shock. And then another, another unique example from a renal standpoint would be worsening uh, acute kidney injury in the form of you know, hepatorenal syndrome. So that, in a nutshell, gives you an idea of how uh, complex the cirrhotic patient is in the ICU and all the indications they can be uh, admitted with that require uh, critical care management. And I know that there are obviously not a, a, a large amount of studies that are focusing specifically on this cirrhotic population in the ICU, but I did come across a paper published earlier this year that you actually wrote an editorial for that came from the UK looking at what is happening, incidents and outcomes with these patients. And it seemed to suggest that even though the, the incidence of admission to the ICU, at least in the UK, is increasing, the mortality has seemed to improve but remains still high, around 30%. And it brings up the concept of acute or chronic liver failure. Could you talk a little bit about that and explain what that concept means? 
Yeah. Um, so just before we go into ACLF, just the, the point that he brought up, and this has been borne out in a couple of studies that over the years, just with an improvement in critical care management of patients with cirrhosis, we have seen a steady improvement in outcomes in these patients admitted to the ICU. So they just wanted to re-emphasize that point that he brought up, that uh, the application of good critical care makes a difference in these patients. So we should not be uh, giving them a negative prognosis as they, you know, as they hit the ICU. Moving on to this concept of acute on chronic liver failure. Um, I must admit as an intensivist, you know, I had a tough time uh, wrapping my brain around the concept because as intensivists, we've been taking care of these patients with multi organ failure in the setting of cirrhosis for a long time. But I think the one, I think, important distinction between ACLF and decompensated cirrhosis is as follows. When you think about decompensated cirrhosis, you typically imagine the patient with massive ascites, variceal bleeding, severe hepatic encephalopathy, with end-stage uh, advanced portal hypertension. So that's decompensated cirrhosis. ACLF is a concept that's actually emerged from the hepatology literature where uh, they suggest that folks with liver disease don't need to reach end-stage liver disease manifestations before they present to the ICU with multi-organ failure. So you can have, for example, a 35-year-old with mild chronic liver disease who suddenly presents to the ICU in the absence of variceal bleeding, in the absence of severe hepatorenal syndrome with multi-organ failure. So, I think, so that is the important distinction uh, that I think, as a, uh, just for an intensive care um, audience, is important to appreciate that you don't need uh, a pre-existing history of end-stage liver disease manifestations to go into multi-organ failure that is characterized, uh, which is defined as ACLF with a high short-term mortality. So I think from a so I think that the big take-home point is as uh, as we as intensivists or intensive care providers. We need to be aware that folks with mild chronic liver disease are also at risk for developing multi-organ failure that requires aggressive management. So and, I hope that answers yeah, your question. Definitely. And I think, Ram, that based on at least my clinical experience in, uh, in hospitals that are not dedicated transplant and pathology services, it, it, would, it would seem that probably the majority of our patients that we're admitting to the ICU are more of the ACLF or acute on chronic liver failure characteristic as opposed to true, true end-stage liver disease. And these are patients who either have a variceal bleed, a septic episode, or something else that triggers a decompensation. But I guess my question is, can you tell us a little bit more about these patients? I mean, I think that there seems to be a nihilistic approach to these patients, but the literature might suggest something a little bit different. Yeah, so going back to what we have spoken about before, I think we need to uh, re-focus uh, our attention on the applying good critical care principles to these patients. I think, um, as opposed to the previous dogma that these patients uh, have a truly negative outcome in, in, in the ICU, and the fact that they've arrived in the ICU means that their risk of survival is low, we need to change that paradigm and re, sort of re-strategize as far as uh, offering them aggressive care 
with a goal to see if you can reverse uh, the acute exacerbation so they can take them to a new steady state as a bridge to uh, temporary stabilization uh, with hopefully with an eventual goal to bridge them to liver transplantation. Um, a lot of these patients in ACLF can be in the younger size and, and in my experience age is a huge prognostic indicator uh, as, as, uh, as, as it applies to general critical care as well. But I think in particular in these ACLF patients, um, we need to be a bit more aggressive about offering them aggressive uh, sort of uh, all the uh, strategies that we have in um, in critical care in order to uh, stabilize them to improve their short-term uh, outcomes. And I think that the, the following that discussion, one of the most common reasons that I see in my practice, and I think a lot of our listeners see for these patients coming to the ICU is acute gastrointestinal bleeding, presumed esophageal varices. Could we talk a little bit about uh, how you approach the diagnostic phase first of somebody who comes in with a history maybe of alcohol um, induced or, or liver underlying liver cirrhosis and now has a GI bleed? Yeah, so um, the first sort of take home measures there I think is that um, location of the various is important. So just before you even get into that, um, the usual things that need to be done for hemorrhagic shock, large bore IV access, uh, elective intubation for shock, and to facilitate endoscopy, uh, especially if they have a you know, compromised mental status. Um, so those boxes need to be checked. Optimization of hematologic parameters, whether it's the INR and the platelet count. Um, and then moving on to treating the, um, the bleed itself. Um, if, assuming it's a variceal bleed, uh, things that uh, are important is location of the varix. So if it's a esophageal variceal bleeding, then that is more amenable to endoscopic hemostasis with band -like, endoscopic band ligation. If there is evidence, even if the patient is arriving from the outside, it's a gastric variceal bleed, those varices are deeper in the, the, sort of the submucosa, they're typically in the fundus of the stomach, and therefore they're less amenable to endoscopic hemostasis. So in most centers, and especially um, if it's a uh, sort of a non-academic center that does not have um, advanced techniques, endoscopic techniques, in my mind, a gastric variceal bleed should be an automatic indication to call interventional radiology for potential tips. Um, so, so I think that's a big take-home message. Esophageal varices, first try endoscopic band ligation. If it's a gastric varix, they should go um, straight to uh, a TIPS procedure. The second um, sort of interventional radiology um, procedure is a BRTO, a balloon, uh, which stands for balloon occluded uh, transvenous, uh, retrograde transvenous obliteration. That is a procedure where uh, the interventional radiologist does not do a TIPS. So you don't go transhepatic, but you actually access the, typically it's a gastric varix, directly using a, an inferior approach through the femoral vein. And you need to have the appropriate anatomy. You need to have a vessel that uh, can be accessed into the gastric varics, but that includes direct coil embolization or ethanol embolization of the bleeding gastric varics. So the next question is, when do you choose TIPS versus BRTO? So TIPS uh, has to be um, used carefully, especially in the high melt patient. So there are no magic numbers, but most centers, if your melt is greater than 20 
or sometimes you wouldn't say 18, there is a risk of post-TIPS hepatic decompensation because you bypass the TIPS blood flow bypasses even those X number of functional hepatocytes. So there is a risk of hepatic decompensation after tipsing a patient with a high MELT score. So that is a prime example of where a BRTO may be helpful, uh, where you uh, do not put the patient through the risk of a TIPS in the setting of a high MELT score, but then he's still able to achieve IR hemostasis with a, another approach using a BRTO. Another example of where a TIPS may be contraindicated is somebody with right heart dysfunction from portal pulmonary hypertension. So that is a classic example where if you know you're dealing with somebody with pulmonary arterial hypertension with compromised RV function, there is a risk of putting them into acute right heart failure if you TIPS them and increase their venous return. Um, and so there's another example where in order to prevent cardiac compromise after TIPS, a BRTO may be a good idea um, uh, instead of, of doing the TIPS procedure. Um, other, other therapies, and they should even precede endoscopy and IR interventions, um, is number one, octreotide, uh, which is, uh, is a splatnic vasoconstrictor, which can decrease splatnic blood flow into the bleeding varics. Number two, um, PPI therapy, um, <clears throat> which at, at this moment in time, we typically do drips. Uh, but there's no great data on that. Um, and number three, and um, which is important, is empiric antibiotics. And empiric antibiotics have, and typically it's a choice of, you know, subtraction is a decent choice, but that can be tailored uh, depending on the site, is to, uh, has been shown to decrease the risk of re-bleeding uh, and also improve mortality. And the rationale for that is when somebody has a bleed, you increase the risk of bacterial translocation um, and therefore increase the risk of bacteremia and also the risk of SPP, which can then lead to a systemic cytokine storm. And so the rationale there is uh, to blunt that cytokine storm with empiric antibiotics uh, so that it can improve uh, the portal hypertension and also uh, improve mortality overall. Um, so those are the big ones uh, as far as interventions. The other thing I would add is, and this is a bit of a dying art in, uh, within gastroenterology and intensive care, is balloon tamponade. Yes. Um, I, must, uh, I must confess that balloon tamponade has saved me many a time. When you have bleeding that's refractory to endoscopic therapy as a bridge to uh, TIPS procedure or to even transplantation. Um, so just to go over the, um, the it's called so the Blakemore tube, if you will, or the mm -hmm. Minnesota tube, it is basically uh, inflating. It has the esophageal balloon and a gastric balloon, and you insert it uh, in an intubated patient. And it's important to ins ins uh, inflate the gastric balloon first, uh, but you have to make sure that you do a test of uh, 50 cc's in the gastric balloon to make sure you're blowing the balloon up in the stomach and not in the esophagus. Um, so once you've confirmed that the balloon is indeed in the stomach, then you blow it up to 400 cc's with air, and then you pull on the uh, end of the tube, and it basically tamponizes the GE junction where the variceal supply is. Um, and then the esophageal balloon, if you still have bleeding that's refractory to um, the gastric balloon insufflation, then you blow up the esophageal balloon with a, with a manometer. Um, but that, in a nutshell, is balloon tamponade. 
um, therapy. Uh, but that is something that should always be uh, considered, especially if you have lack of endoscopic hemostasis with a gastric or esophageal or with esophageal bleed, or you have uh, acute gastric versus bleeding as a bridge to um, uh, TIPS procedure or a BRTO. And and I think that um, something that is maybe important. I mean, and uh, uh, just get your opinion. Obviously, the um, the balloon um, esophageal or gastric balloon occlusion is really only in those who have confirmed diagnosis endoscopically, right? Because uh, even though we always think that if a patient with cirrhosis is bleeding from their upper GI tract, it's a varices, there are a percent of cases in which it's not, and in those cases, it probably wouldn't help or could cause damage. Correct. So I think uh, that's a that's a good point. So I would always uh, either you have outside hospital endoscopic data that documents a variceal bleed, or you uh, or they have been documented with variceal bleeding uh, at your institution. So that's a good point. So I would just confirm that you're truly dealing with a portal hypertensive bleed uh, before you uh, step into the uh, you go using a Blake mall. And and in terms of uh, uh, of the expectations, well, what do you think uh, is a uh, current expectations uh, for those who are maybe admitting these patients at night? I mean, endoscopic endoscopic therapy, both diagnostic and therapeutic, should really be something that occurs within hours of the patient being stabilized, right? That is correct. That is correct. And so I think the call to the the GI um, physician or provider should happen quick uh, as they hit the ICU as the patient is the ICU. Um, I think that's a conversation that should be held early. These patients uh, have a risk of you know, rapid, rapidly progressing into hemorrhagic shock. And so I think if there's a suspected variceal bleed, uh, time is of the essence to um, initiate that GI referral so that they can be, um, they can go under endoscopy, endoscopy um, uh, sort of in an expedited fashion. Excellent. And I think that two aspects, Ram, that might be worth uh, discussing now, which I think are related to treating, especially those very uh, severe or very refractory bleeds, are both the uh, hemostatic aspects of treating cirrhotic patients and the hemodynamic aspects that also can be seen sometimes if patients develop infection or septic shock. So I think that why don't we start a little bit in terms of what are your parameters in terms of how you would support the hemostatic aspect and talk a little bit about what 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 people think occurs in in in, in cirrhosis and what actually has occurred in terms of rebalancing. Yeah, so uh, generally speaking, um I think one take-home message with regard to the coagulopathy of liver disease is that an elevated INR does not necessarily translate to, uh, in the absence of bleeding, does not relate to a higher risk of, of bleeding. Because um, it's important to note that when you have hepatic dysfunction, you lose both sides of the coagulation ca cascade. You lose not only using factor five and seven, you're also losing protein C and protein S. So the net state of coagulation may be normal in these patients. In fact, folks inform DBTs with an INR of three. So that's sort of a, sort of a question, uh, comment just independent of variceal bleeding. Once they start bleeding, I think all bets are off. Then you have to think about what is sort of optimal hemostatic, you know, hematologic parameters. And again, there's, to my knowledge, there's no evidence-based data. But one thing I would say is that the general consensus is that a platelet count greater than 50 can optimize uh, thrombin generation and therefore the platelet plug. So that's something we, we shoot for, is at least keeping the platelet count 
uh, greater than 15 of these patients. With regard to INR, uh, I think, um, again, there is no uh, evidence-based data supporting this. Um, I think a, if you have an INR of three or four and you're bleeding, then I think it's reasonable to target you know, an INR of sort of closer to two. Sort of an INR FFP is about 1.6, so that's where you're going to get to. So I think that that level of correction is is justified as far as using um, FFP and using platelets. The third would be cryoprecipitate, um, <clears throat> sort of targeting of fibrinogen. And I think a, 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 in the setting of bleeding, a target fibrinogen greater than 100, I think is a reasonable goal. Um, so those, I think those are rough parameters to think about. Plilocan greater than 50, uh, fibrinogen greater than 100, and INR sort of in the, close, in the range of 1.6 to 2 as far as correction of, quite, uh, of the INR. Um, the other thing that we, again, there's no evidence on this, but if they are in renal dysfunction, and especially in C, sort of CKD, we do use DDAVP uh, with a goal to uh, improve the, uh, the qualitative function of those, uh, those few platelets that they have. So that's something that we do, um, especially if they have uh, concomitant renal dysfunction. Um, so I think that that's, I think, summarizes my thoughts on the sort of the hematologic management. The one, one thing I would, again, as we do in all, all kinds of all other forms of hemorrhagic shock, is make sure that you monitor for cold coagulopathy, which can exacerbate the bleeding. Um, so whether it means using warmers, blood warmers, especially if you're doing a massive transfusion. Number two, I would make the point about watching out serum calcium, um, as we do for other forms of resuscitation and hemorrhagic shock, is to uh, monitor your calcium, especially if you're dealing with somebody who's hemodynamically unstable. Um, so that was hematology. And then I think we briefly spoke about sort of cardiovascular uh, ramifications. We can sort of delve, go into that concept. And just to sort of share a few thoughts on that, um, the patient with cirrhosis who comes to the ICU is exquisitely sensitive to any hypotensive uh, insults because they are living at a, at a baseline decreased arterial blood volume. And that's why we have folks in the clinic or even on the non-ICU inpatient floors who are hanging out a map of 50-55 and they don't have any clinical signs of end-organ hypoperfusion. And that's because they have abnormal shunting of their cardiac output at a baseline level into this splanchnic circulation because it's splanchnic vasodilation. And so we know, we've now come to appreciate that. And because of the splanchnic shunt, they have a decreased effective arterial blood volume. So when you superimpose a new hypotensive insult onto that physiology, whether it's variceal bleeding that causes hypovolemia, whether it's a large volume paracentesis that induces hypovolemia, when you have a septic trigger from a SPP or a UTI, or if you onset cardiac dysfunction that gives you cardiogenic um, hypotension, all those insults can predictably further worsen uh, the uh, hemodynamic status and put them into a rapidly progressive shock. And so I think that is something for the intensive care provider that is an important thing to appreciate is how exquisitely sensitive these patients are to hemodynamic compromise. And then just extending that argument, and this is very predictable, especially in, in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, is that you can anticipate, or you need to be very vigilant for the development of acute kidney injury, just because uh, your hemodynamic collapse is 
going to cause renal hypoperfusion. And so you can sort of anticipate, you can see that AKI coming uh, when you have a massive variceal bleed or a, uh, a septic trigger. So just to sort of um, include hepatorenal syndrome in that, in that context of, of superimposed shock of any etiology that um, we need to be aware of. Excellent. I think that um, one more question regarding uh, the bleeding. Uh, so you talked about uh, initial therapies with endoscopic therapies, adjuvant therapy, very important, like you said, to include the antibiotics. Um, what about uh, any role in the ICU or when should the intensivist start thinking about secondary prevention? Let's say we stabilize the patient, they get their therapies. Is this something that happens in the ICU or something that happens later in terms of starting patients on potential agents that might prevent rebleeding. No, so that's a good point. So, um, so as you've already alluded to, something that we do routinely um, is um, initiate nonspecific beta blocker therapy with nadolol. Uh, once the patient resolves his or her acute injury, acute bleed, and stabilizes hemodynamically, then the data would support the initiation of nonspecific beta blockade blocking both beta-1 and beta-2 receptors in order to decrease the risk of recurrent variceal bleeding. Um, and so just to go with that rationale, beta-1 blockade is supposed to decrease the, the cardiac output, thereby decreasing splanting blood flow. And the second, the beta-2 blockade is actually to block the beta-2 receptors in the splanting circulation, uh, which can then lead to splanting vasoconstriction. So that is why um, so that is the rationale for using a non-specific beta blocker as secondary prophylaxis uh, for uh, variceal bleeding. There is some data, and I think this is, I must admit at our center, we're not, uh, we haven't fully subscribed to this. There is a data from the Spanish um, literature, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of investigators in Spain um, published in the New England Journal about maybe three, four years ago that uh, introduces the idea of an early TIPS, uh, especially in somebody who has high risk for rebleeding. And so almost like a prophylactic TIPS, even after the um, cessation of the initial bleed. And that is something that I think is um, not universally applied across, especially across the US. Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned, you have to watch, you have to weigh the risks and benefits of the TIPS procedure, especially if you're dealing with somebody whose MELT score is drifting, um, and it may be high risk for post-tips decompensation from a uh, hepatic standpoint. But that's more of a center-specific practice as to uh, prophylact use TIPS prophylactically as secondary prophylaxis um, for, uh, to prevent recurrent variceal bleeding. On that theme, and this is more of a uh, practice outside the ICU, but just to uh, introduce the, so the, the rest of the management, uh, these patients should ideally uh, be undergo secondary prophylaxis uh, with endoscopic banding as well, especially with esophageal variceal bleeding. Uh, they should be scheduled in a few weeks for repeat endoscopic uh, um, evaluation and potential banding, and that can be repeated every uh, you know four to six weeks uh, with a goal to eradicate the varices over time, and this will typically happen in the outpatient setting. So between the natal law and the endoscopic um, management, that is our, our sort of current strategy for secondary prophylaxis for variceal bleeding. 
Excellent. And one of the things that we mentioned about uh, selecting patients for TIPS, uh, one of the potential complications is the uh, increased risk of hepatic encephalopathy. So I think that that might be a good lead way into talking uh, about that other common complication that I think it will land patients with cirrhosis in the intensive care unit. So maybe a good point to start, and I've heard you talk about this before, Ram, is making sure that we, we differentiate between what is the hepatic encephalopathy of acute liver failure or acute hepatic encephalopathy versus what we're talking about in this population with cirrhosis. Yeah, so I think that's an important point. So just to take a, to take a step back, you know, we've been talking about uh, cirrhotic patients. Um, and we can, for the sake of this this part of the conversation, couple ACLF with decompensated cirrhosis. So we're dealing with chronic liver disease. There's a whole other population of patients with liver failure that we term acute liver failure, and that's that's a different disease process. And just to define acute liver failure or ALF, ALF strictly defined is the onset of hepatic encephalopathy. Um, within six to eight weeks of first symptoms of hepatic dysfunction, such as coagulopathy or jaundice. And this is the important part of the definition, in a patient without pre-existing liver disease. So a classic example would be 28-year-old uh, young person, no chronic liver disease, who takes a whole lot of Tylenol and comes with a Tylenol overdose. So that is the... Um, sort of the classic example of a patient with ALF, which is totally different from the rest of our conversation today. When you think about that ALF and you and think about that hepatic encephalopathy, that, that phenotype of encephalopathy is very, very different from the hepatic encephalopathy of this erotic patient. Um, and just to sort of cut to the chase, and then I'll dissect out the, uh, the mechanistic rationale. When you see a patient with advanced encephalopathy who has acute liver failure, there is a risk of developing pathologic intracranial hypertension and cerebral herniation. So I think that's a big take-home message. And that's why it's so important to make sure that you're dealing with ALF or ACLF. In ACLF, um, or sort of, and I'm, I'm using the term a bit loosely, and I'm coupling decomposition cirrhosis into that, that hepatic encephalopathy has minimal to no risk of developing intracranial hypertension and therefore developing cerebral herniation. So why do we think this is the case? Um, so just to go through that rationale, ammonia uh, is a player to some degree in the hepatic encephalopathy in both cases. Um, it's not the whole story because especially in cirrhotics, you can have a stone cold normal ammonia level and they can be florally encephalopathic. So there are other mechanisms. Um, but there is, <clears throat> but let's just for the sake of argument say there's, there's, there's some degree of hyperaminemia that contributes to both processes. Compare a 25 year old Tylenol overdose case with a 50 year old hepatitis C cirrhotic case. So one is ALF and one is ACLF. Ammonia is getting metabolized in the urea cycle in the liver. When you have a hep C cirrhotic who's had the disease process for, let's say, 25 years, so the urea cycle in that, in that context has been slowly dwindling away, but because of the chronicity of the disease process, you've had the time for extrahepatic tissues to upregulate ammonia-fixing mechanisms, and, and the enzyme is glutamine synthetase. 
And so, so for example, muscle can upregulate glutamine synthetase. And so when you have a pneumonia challenge, whereas you're bleeding, for example, even though the urea cycle in the liver is not working, you've had time for extrahepatic tissues to create sinks for the ammonia. And so you protect the brain from seeing an ammonia challenge when you have chronic liver disease. Contrast that scenario to the patient with ALF, 25-year-old, perfectly normal, no chronic liver disease, decides to take a whole lot of Tylenol, acutely fries his or her urea cycle. Suddenly, you have a, in a, a hyperaminemic milieu, and you haven't had the luxury of time, as you saw in the cirrhotic, to fix uh, ammonia extrahepatically. So suddenly, the CNS circulation sees this hyperaminemic state and is not protected. And astrocytes, by the way, have glutamine synthetase. So then you have the risk of developing acute astrocyte swelling because the ammonia is being fixed, is fixed in the astrocytes. And that, I think, is a good mechanistic explanation for why the patient with ALF can develop cytotoxic edema and then develop intracranial hypertension versus the cirrhotic, which is the, the, you know, the focus of our conversation today, who may develop hepatic encephalopathy but does not have the risk or minimal, has minimal risk of developing ICP elevations and cerebral herniation. So I think that's a very important take-home message where we need to make sure uh, when we see a patient described as acute liver failure, that number one, we're truly dealing with acute liver failure. Um, because, and the best way to tease that out, and the first question I ask somebody when they call me, they have a patient with acute liver failure, because that, that term gets used very loosely, is what does the abdominal imaging show? If the CT or the MRI shows a shrunken liver, a big spleen, large varices, massive ascites, that, by definition, is not ALF. It's acute and chronic liver disease. And so abdominal imaging is the most uh, practical and useful way to distinguish an ALF and ACLF. And then you can triage. And then if they say that I got a patient uh, with ALF uh, who's encephalopathic, and they tell me, by the way, the abdominal imaging shows just some mild hepatic edema, the spleen size is normal, that really sends alarm bells off in my mind, that this patient is truly ALF because they don't have radiographic signs of chronic portal hypertension, and this patient is at risk for herniation. So that <clears throat> changes the whole equation as far as, um, of, as far as management, and then we can get into management um, you know, um, in, our, in our next conversation. But, but just to make the distinction regarding pathophysiology and distinguishing between, distinguishing between the hepatic encephalopathy of ALF versus the, the uh, physiology of hepatic encephalopathy of ACLF. And I think it's it's very important and very useful to think about the, the mechanism because ultimately, like you, you said, patients with acute liver failure who die of hepatic encephalopathy died because they herniated. And patients uh, with chronic liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure don't herniate. And if they die, it's because of other, other issues related to their disease process. So let's let's dive into the, the hepatic encephalopathy of the cirrhotic patient. And uh, the first question I have is, I mean, I've always been taught and have thought of the diagnosis as being a clinical diagnosis, but there is obviously the pervasive ammonia level that uh, is always present uh, in, in the workups. Could you talk a little bit about the diagnosis and specifically the role of ammonia? 
Sure. So um, as, a, as a practical point, I don't, when I have a cirrhotic who comes in with encephalopathy, I don't even check an ammonia level most of the time. If they are confused, they will see therapy with lactulose, rifaximin, um, zinc. So they have. So, so just from my decision algorithm regarding treatment, I don't use uh, an ammonia level to guide my decision making regarding starting therapy. So I think that's an important take-home message regarding uh, for the ICU practitioner is that uh, please don't use a normal ammonia level to rule out a diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy as as you decide to treat uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Just a brief sort of sidebar note, in ALF, in acute liver failure, there's actually good data that if you're uh, stating the import the utility of using a serial ammonia level as a prognostic indicator for encephalopathy and intracranial hypertension. And the data would suggest that if your serial ammonia levels are in the one, greater than 150 to 200, you actually have have a higher risk of developing elevated ICP um, and all the uh, negative effects of that. So there is diagnostic utility to serum ammonia levels in ALF. But going back to our population that we're talking about today, I don't routinely use serum ammonia levels to um, rule in uh, or, or, or a diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy in these patients. Uh, and my decision regarding treatment is independent of the ammonia level. There is data suggesting, um, again, of a couple of studies, suggesting that serial ammonia levels may be useful uh, to gauge response to therapy, especially if you, don't, if you don't have a patient waking up after, you know, two, three days of therapy. Um, so there may be some utility with that. And just one of the sort of comment on, on, on in that context is if you have a cirrhotic who's densely encephalopathic and for the, they're coming in with a fourth admission for hepatic encephalopathy, one... Uh, I think take-home message there is we should look carefully at the abdominal imaging, especially the abdominal vascular imaging, but some, because some of these patients can develop spontaneous portosystemic shunts. And the classic example is a spinal shunt. It's, a, it's a basically a compensatory mechanism to deal with the portal hypertension to get the venous return back. But the, the problem with some of these spontaneous shunts, especially they get large, is that they bypass hepatic parenchymal flow. So the blood is not finding its way to the portal vein and totally bypassing the urea cycle, what's left of it. So these kind of patients can become floridly encephalopathic even if they don't have a high MEL score. Um, and so there, there'll be a disconnect between the degree of liver disease severity as defined by the MEL score and the hepatic encephalopathy symptoms. So I think that's a pract useful practical point that if you have hepatic encephalopathy that's disproportionate to the MEL score or it just persists and is refractory to therapy, then you should make sure that you're not sitting on a spontaneous shunt. Now, the next question is, what do you do with a spontaneous shunt? And there are actually case reports regarding embolizing that shunt with IR, but it's, it's sort of sort of a bit, bit tricky. In our center, we have done it uh, anecdotally for persistence in the fifth admission for hepatic encephalopathy required intubation, but there is a risk of, of, uh, of embolizing those, the, the, those shunts because then it can worsen the underlying portal hypertension. And number two, we have, in our cases, we have actually seen a higher risk of developing mesoteric vein thrombosis, um, which has implications regarding transplant candidacy. But just, just wanted to mention 
that fact as well. And I think that's a good tip. I mean, for for those patients, like you said, that that seem to be behaving in a way that goes out of the norm. Now, Ram, in terms of, of treatment, you you mentioned uh, lactulose um, and rifaximin. Why don't we start with? I mean, just in terms of your your general approach. And one of the questions that always arises, or two questions that arise with lactulose, is uh, are enemas a problem and should we avoid them? And two, how do I titrate my lactulose therapy in people in the ICU who might have a rectal tube? Right. Um, so lactulose enemas actually, uh, personally, I think they're useful, especially if you have a compromised mental status or a um, tenuous airway. I think uh, if you have somebody with great sort of grade two encephalopathy, uh, great just to start with lactulose enemas, may be a good starting point to sort of improve the encephalopathy to a degree with where you can then switch to lactulose. So that's one strategy that we do use. A um, couple of caveats to lactulose in the ICU, and actually I'm almost tempted to say that we sometimes use rifaximin as first line. Um, number one is beware uh, the risk of developing or oh, exacerbating underlying ileus. Uh, some of these folks may already have a septic ileus to begin with, and so lactulose can worsen that ileus. And we've had cases where folks have shown up from uh, to our ICU with nasal perforation because they've been, um, I guess, over, uh, sort of uh, been very uh, had undergone aggressive lactulose PO lactulose therapy. Number two, I would caution against uh, watch uh, against lactulose when you already have an underlying uh, metabolic acidosis. And that's typically a gap metabolic acidosis from hepatic failure coupled with renal failure. And then if you uh, exacerbate that metabolic acidosis with diarrhea, then you can add a component of non-gap acidosis as well. So those are a couple of checkboxes that I do for lactulose ileus. And look at a QB. And number two is watch your acid-base status. And um, those are, in my mind, a couple of contraindications to using PO lactulose in particular which makes me actually go towards rifaximin as first line. Rectal tubes is sort of a, it's an area of controversy. Um, we've had um, some pretty significant uh, lower uh, rectal bleeds from chronic indwelling rectal tubes. And so we are still trying to come up with a protocol and the latest is we you know deflate. If, if we put a rectal tube in with a goal to uh, maintain hygiene and prevent um, you know, circular D cubes, especially the patient who's in the ICU for a while, uh, we we have to be very careful about how long we're keeping the balloon in, because especially if there's a risk uh, or the history of rectal varices, I think it definitely should be a contraindication of placing a rectal tube. Number two, we've had cases where they've had uh, sterile ulcers, they've had pressure ulcers in the rectum that has caused massive hematochesia uh, that has been clinically significant. So just a word of caution regarding rectal tubes in these patients um, and weighing the risks and benefits of it, especially when you're giving lactulose and inducing diarrhea. Um, so you bring up a very good point that we have to be careful about the use of rectal tubes in these patients. And, and how do you titrate your lactulose therapy in general? Oh, yeah. Sorry. You... So that part, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the rough rule of thumb, especially in the non-acute setting, is to um, titrate in the to three to four soft bowel movements per day. So that's the sort of the textbook description, especially in the outpatient setting when you're dealing with you know, chronic hepatic encephalopathy. In the acute setting, I can you can extrapolate that data. Um, 
But again, I would just watch your acid-base status and make sure you're not inducing a non-GAF acidosis, especially if you have normal bicarbs to begin with, um, and then watch for the ileus as well. So I think those are two issues. But the but the general um, the general practices are TID dosing, uh, 30 cc's TID, and and see how they do, and just watch your watch your bicarb watch your bicarb and watch the number of bowel movements. You don't want to be inducing you know, frank diarrhea in these patients. The other thing I should mention is the role of Miralax. Um, as you may know, there's data now uh, suggesting the use of Miralax instead of lactulose for all the reasons, all the sort of the side effects of lactulose that I mentioned. And so that is something that is uh, anecdotally gaining increasing use in, in, our, in our patients in the ICU uh, especially if you're having problems with um, with lactulose, so just to mention that as well. And I also have a, a so two two things. So one one comment is that I've I've heard people talk about the three to four bowel movements being equivalent to like 500 mLs of stool. Is that true or appropriate? And maybe so, an indication. Yeah, so that that's a rough. Uh, I think a decent estimate. I must say I haven't seen. Uh, again, I'm not aware of. Uh, a great correlation with uh, with that volume, um, but I think that's a r reasonable reasonable estimate, if you will. Um, so I think that's a and and you did, reasonable. Yeah. You did mention the Miralax or the polyethylene glycol. Uh, there seems to be more more talk about that in the literature. Any any other comments you can make on um, this? Is, I guess would be an alternative, not something you would add to, to lactulose, obviously. But any other comments Graham, on on that on that use? No, so I think it's just gaining increasing use. Uh, I think the, I'm not aware of uh, at least the critical care setting uh, a study that has addressed that question specifically, looking at lactulose versus Miralax and looking at sort of clinically important endpoints. But I would just mention that um, as something that we can use instead of lactulose. Uh, in this patient population. Um, the one other thing that, and again, this is more um, our, our center specific, is the use of albumin dialysis in these patients. Um, so you may be familiar with the, the, the MARS system, which is an example of albumin dialysis that's the most used in the, in the world. Uh, very few centers in the U.S. have um, adopted this strategy yet, but in my uh, experience over the many years, this is this is the one indication which actually has randomized controlled trial level evidence that um, shows its efficacy in reversing refractory hepatic encephalopathy and cirrhosis. And our experience has been <clears throat> very uh, supportive of that concept. We have folks, and we're just actually treating somebody now with a meld of 40 intubated who has been refractory, has grade 4 dense encephalopathy on Lactulose, rifaximin, zinc. Uh, we've also used IV metronidazole, which is, a, you know, metronidazole is a thing of the past, but we've added that as well. Uh, but the patient has refractory to that, and we've start, we started albumin dialysis, and basically it's basically just as a brief word on that, you're replacing um, the dialysate uh, with a 16% albumin solution instead of an aqueous solution. Uh, and the rationale is you're extracting endogenous benzodiazepines, which are a, an example of a molecule that's specifically albumin-bound that won't come off with the CRT circuit, but now will come off with the albumin dialysis circuit. And in my experience, that has been a very valuable addition to our hepatic encephalopathy treatment armamentarium 
in those cases that uh, in which folks are refractory to conventional therapy. So this They're obviously reproducibly, yeah. Yeah. would be would be something that you're using in refractory cases, but not as a first line therapy. Correct, correct. And so it has helped us liberate folks on the ventilator, has prevented us from uh, intubating folks with worsening encephalopathy. Um, so it's been a great addition to uh, uh, to our options as far as the treatment of uh, hepatic encephalopathy, especially as these patients are getting sicker and sicker awaiting transplant. Well, one of the things obviously that we've uh, touched on through this conversation is that uh, you are in a very specialized uh, tertiary quaternary care center with a transplant service and a the dedicated hepatic ICU. But what about um, in terms of most of our providers or most of our listeners probably are working in hospitals that don't have a transplant um, uh, unit or don't have a transplant program for hepatic tra transplantation. When should these patients be referred for evaluation? When should we be reaching out to, to people who are doing transplants to try to get a gauge, are these patients candidates for transplant or not? Yes, I think if a patient with cirrhosis shows up in the ICU, by definition, they've had their first episode of decompensation. And I think, in in my opinion, if there are no um, significant psychosocial barriers, and I'll talk talk about that in a bit, uh, to transplantation, um, then they should be uh, they should be uh, considered for referral to a transplant center. Um, the, from a biochemical standpoint, you know, we typically, most liver transplant centers will start uh, the ball rolling for transplant evaluation, especially in the outpatient setting, if the MELD score, which is a, for the audience, that's a score, and it's called the MELD sodium score now. It's basically a function of INR, bilirubin, creatinine, and the sodium, serum sodium. If that MELD score exceeds 15, and by the way, normal is about you know, 6 to 7, the highest you can go is 40. But if it exceeds 15, that's a typical biochemical trigger to start um, start to start a transplant evaluation. But from a from an ICU perspective, um, if they have their symptom of decompensation, variceal bleeding, hepatic encephalopathy, I think that should at least trigger a uh, it will trigger a GI consultation. But the next step would be to think about uh, referring, uh, at least uh, assessing that patient. Um, uh, to see if there would be a suitable you know, transplant candidate. So going into that scenario, um, things that could be potential barriers to transplant. So, I can, uh, so just to go over medical contraindications uh, would be cardiac contraindications. They have severe, you know, three vessel coronary artery disease, um, or a, a, a compromised systolic heart dysfunction, a compromised systolic function you know, defined in the EF less than 40%. Or they they have severe portal pulmonary hypertension, or pulmonary and any any other form of pulmonary hypertension where the the mean peer pressure is greater than 35. So those will be examples of where we will use those as contraindications to uh, transplantation. Um, severe lung disease would be, you know, and this is we're talking about extremes of severe chronic obstructive lung disease would be another potential would be a contraindication. Um, psychosocially and we can talk a little bit on this. You know, alcohol was, I'm using the word was, was a, uh, active alcohol is a pretty hard stop for most transplant centers. And the so the rough rule of thumb was they have to demonstrate six months of sobriety and 
be enrolled in a formal alcohol relapse prevention program before they would be considered for transplant evaluation. Now that paradigm is, is changing across the country and across the world. And now um, some uh, many of the centers, including ours, are actually on a case-by-case -case basis even considering transplant for acute alcoholic hepatitis. So this may be the 35-year-old with fresh binge alcohol, um, maybe the first attempt, maybe this, uh, of 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 uh, alcohol acute stressor, but they have a supportive family. If they are, and, and again, this is always a, a controversial conversation in our selection meetings. But just to make the audience aware that the the perspective on transplanting for alcoholic liver disease is undergoing an evolution. And so, um, you know, the active alcohol uh, consumers that has precipitated the acute event. Uh, depending on where you are in the country, it may be useful to touch base the nearest transplant center to assess their policy regarding transplantation for alcoholic liver disease. Um, and the other thing I would mention from a social standpoint is we are looking for uh, a very sound uh, family support system or a social support system because transplant is putting the liver in is just one piece of the whole puzzle. We need to uh, convince ourselves as, as transplant providers that the liver will be taken care of for a long, long period of time. So that's the other, that's the other box we're trying to check is to make sure that there's enough of a family support and social support around to make sure that uh, transplant is justifiable. And from a very practical, I mean, standpoint, just a question regarding unfunded patients. I mean, most transplant centers probably can't afford to take patients who have no, no insurance or no funding. Is that correct? Or is that a that misconception? Is correct. That is, un that is unfortunately that is the the current state of affairs, and you know we, as a center, do have on a case by case basis we have X amount of charity care that we can uh, offer, um, and we typically try to you know find the right patient for if it's a young patient um, with the right you know family support, uh, maybe an acute liver failure from you know, cryptogenic etiology. Um, we do, we do have the option to trigger that um, that op, uh, that, no, that financial support, but that is that's an exception rather than the rule. But un so unfortunately, there are times when we are unable to um, offer transplantation as life-saving therapy because of financial issues. And in those candidates or in those patients who are not candidates for transplant, let's say, I, th I think that from what we, we, we've discussed, Ram, it seems that these patients, every patient should deserve the, uh, or, or, or deserves be, being evaluated by a transplant team. So I think that for those providers who are not transplant experts, we should not be making that decision. We should refer these patients early, hear from the transplant team, let them decide, tell us if it's a yay or a nay. But in those who are not candidates, can you talk about um, some aspects that might be prognostic in terms of very poor outcomes or when, I mean, uh, appropriate goals of care discussions would be would be reasonable. Uh, I came across this paper and we talked about it a little bit before we started recording the podcast from the European Association of Study of Liver Disease uh, uh, on the organ score and maybe the MELD. Just uh, your thoughts on, on how we could use those scores. Yeah, so um, the... Specifically, when you, when you talk about ACLF, I think the data would suggest, again, few stu few studies from Europe, but the data would suggest that um, when you're treating somebody with ACLF, um, you should continue therapy 
aggressive therapy between uh, at least from days three to seven post the acute insult. And the the um, prognostic scoring systems, depending on using any of the score scoring systems that we use in critical care, I think is applicable. But the general trend shows an improvement by day seven of therapy, then it may be, uh, especially in ACL, that may be grounds to continue aggressive management. So I think the important take-home message there is not to throw in the towel too fast as far as just offering them critical care support and not sort of drawing a line in the sand after day two or day three of of, um, of aggressive management. Um, so th those would be some initial thoughts. I think there's still data emerging regarding, as you've mentioned, different prognostic scores being used, um, and, and, the, and the Europeans have really been active in this field. Um, but I think it's, it's important uh, going back to the initial conversation regarding um, applying uh, our established principles of critical care to this patient population to see if they will you know, reverse their physiology before we deem them uh, to be futile uh, as far as, 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 far as the therapeutic approaches. The one thing I would mention in this context is, and I think this question comes up a fair amount, is uh, if a patient is deemed not a candidate at this time for whatever reason, and they are in acute kidney injury, some uh, some folks, may, some nephrologists in particular, may say that, oh, because they're not a transplant candidate, we're not going to support their acute kidney injury without, with dialysis. And I would just, again, this is my personal bias, but I would make the argument that, especially, especially with a classic example of the alcoholic liver disease with HRS, is that if you stabilize them through the acute episode, and let's say they even transition to HD, intermittent HD, you create a new baseline where you can um, stabilize them and maybe then create an opportunity for them to be reassessed for transplant in the future. Um, so I think this conversation always seems to come up is, when is it futile to dialyze a patient with HRS, especially if you don't have transplant as an immediate backup? But I would make the argument that, especially with a young patient, um, to see if you can stabilize them in the short term uh, with a goal to eventually see if they can be a transplant candidate in the future. And I think that that's also, I, I guess, an important reason why a very robust conversation with a transplant team is important because there's a difference between they're not a candidate now, but if a and B occur, they could be a candidate versus they're not a candidate full stop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially in the in the, in the younger patient, and and, I, and I'm sort of bucketing younger age with you know, alcoholic liver disease, but we're seeing, um, you know, again, we have a couple of patients right now in their 40s who are sick with alcoholic liver disease where we're trying to stabilize and severe multi-organ failure where they're not transplant candidates right now, but we're rethinking how we how we define futility in these patients. Interesting. So I think that um, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot of topics that obviously we have not been able to dive into that maybe uh, we could touch on on a future podcast. But uh, one of the things that we like to do, Ram, at the end of the podcast is ask our guests a couple questions not related to the topic just to kind of tap into their general wisdom and knowledge. Would that be okay? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the first question is, uh, what book ha or books have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others? So I must admit, I haven't done much reading outside of medicine um, uh, in the past, but I did go through an MBA recently. Um, 
and uh, and I and I shared this in the context of actually ICU management. I think a lot of our intensive care colleagues are leaders in their ICU. And one book I came across, it's called the McKinsey Edge, and this is the McKinsey Consulting Company um, based on their context. But this book was written, I think, about a year ago, and and I've read a few books on leadership, but this book in particular, uh, I found it as a great read. I just couldn't put it down. And I think it's, it's and one of the things that appealed to me, it's very um, practical information. It's almost like a bullet point that, he, that the author expands on. But I think it gives some really useful insight into how uh, a leader manages uh, himself or herself, how he manages the folks that he leads, uh, and how he or she grows in that role. And so I was reflecting on on this book in the context of what we do in the ICU um, as physicians, how we, or as or as other providers, how we interact with our colleagues. Um, because at the end of the day, um, ICU is a team sport. And so, I, <clears throat> so I, I've been reflecting on that book and what I've learned from that book, um, which may be applicable to our ICU context. So that that's one book in particular, The McKinsey Edge. And by the way, this is a series of books. There's a McKinsey Mind, and this, um, but it basically pulls those business concepts uh, from that consulting firm and sees how we can apply it to other contexts, including medicine. And I think that a lot of it, it a lot of what we, we need to learn is really universal, right? It's about managing people, managing teams, managing oneself. And like you said, I mean, where it's a context of a consulting firm or an intensive care unit, a lot of the behaviors that need to be managed are very similar. So we'll definitely put that book in the show notes. I mean, I, I have not read that book, but I definitely will pick it up. Sounds like a very interesting read. The second question, Ram, is what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life? that most other people don't believe? So, and as I respond to this, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I can say that other people don't believe, but I just want to share one, uh, sort of, I guess, one philosophy that I have as I'm teaching medicine, uh, especially to my, to my trainees, is that, especially in ICU medicine, it's complex. We're dealing with a lot of data points. We're dealing with a lot of intricate physiology. But I always emphasize to them what I, do, what I sort of term as first principles. Go back to your first principles. There are certain limited tenets of, of physiology, for example, that if you understand those basic building blocks, then you can use those building blocks to then connect the dots, however complex the system becomes. And I apply the same concept when I was teaching you know, biochemistry, where you can, um, even though you've got so many biochemical reactions that deal with carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism, at the end of the day, you have seven reactions or eight reactions that uh, underlie uh, those all those different um, uh, biochemical pathways. So it's, a, it's about getting those basics right and then connecting the dots. So I hope that that answer makes sense, but I just wanted to, um, I sometimes feel that we get so caught up in, um, especially as, and as you're coming through the ranks of the complexity of medicine, especially in ICU medicine, that uh, we, uh, we sometimes forget the underlying foundation of it. And so just a, just a, just a thought that I wanted to share with the audience is to, 
really uh, focus on the foundational blocks that then uh, in many ways explains very complex systems. No, I love it. I think that uh, getting back to first principles, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm a big jazz fan, and Charles Mingus used to say that making the simple complex is commonplace, but making the complex exceedingly simple is creativity. And I think it applies also to the way you think at the bedside, right? There's a lot of clutter, but being able to go to those first principles, I think, is a, is a great way to, to, to move forward and take good care of patients. And I would argue that whether people believe it or not, they don't behave in that way. Very often, I think they make things more complicated than they should. So well, I think it's a good reminder for the audience. And the last question, Ram, is what would you want every intensivist who's listening to our podcast today to know? It could be a fact or a quote or something specific about this population that we just discussed. Yeah, I was I'm reflecting on this question, and maybe I'll just go back to um, – <clears throat> What one of my mentors in critical care told me was uh, um, when I was in training, and one thing I really appreciated him was his conversations uh, with families regarding the potential futility of care and sort of end of life discussions. And this is something I still use to this day. I just I just channel his you know, his phrase. Uh, we do a lot of you know, we do a lot of uh, aggressive things in intensive care with a goal to reverse the uh, the process uh, or the derangement. But one thing that he always said is, uh, despite all the advancements in modern medicine, uh, it has its limitations. And so as intensivists or as intensive care providers, uh, we need to know when all uh, interventions are potentially futile and whether we need to change our goals of care from one of cure to one of comfort. And this sort of that the statement, although I learned this, I don't know, many years ago, it's still something that I use every time when I'm having that difficult conversation with the patient's family at the bedside. Um, so I think just, uh, I just as I was reflecting on this question, that's that's what came, came back to me as something that I wanted to share with the audience is to uh, we, we do a lot of high-acuity um, procedures and interventions, but I think we just need to make sure that we um, check the box regarding um, the, uh, the potential uh, futility of our interventions and how to have that conversation with, you know, with, the, with the patient's loved one regarding making the transition. Uh, from a curative process to a comfort process. And I think that this is a great place to stop. I really appreciate your time, Ram. Hope to have you back on the podcast soon and uh, wish you a great uh, end of the year. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, too. And um, thank you for having me. This was, uh, this was a great experience. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.